And again, if you have uh, your Bibles open, we will be in that section of First uh, Peter chapter 2 that Steve read for us. Uh, we are beginning a new series called Gospel Truths and Gospel Culture. And we're beginning uh, with a theme of substitution. Uh, to borrow that line from Man of Sorrows, in my place condemned he, the Lord Jesus, stood. And um, so why... Uh, this series on gospel truth and gospel culture. Uh, well, let me begin by thinking about the largest diamond ever discovered in the world. Perhaps you know its name. It's the Cullinan Diamond. It weighed in at some 3,106 carats. Uh, discovered in a mine in South Africa in 1905. Since 1907 has been part of the crown jewels. If you ever want to see it, you can go to the Tower of London. If you ever want to touch it, you will not be allowed to. It's far too precious. Uh, but the wonderful thing about diamonds, so I'm told, I've never experienced this, but uh, but as you turn the, the diamond, you see its many facets, and you see it refracting the light. However you turn it, you're going to see fresh glimpses of beauty. And so with that in our minds, let's think about the gospel. Why are we doing a series on the gospel and the culture that the gospel produces? Because it's always good for us as the people of God to slow down and examine the good news at the heart of our faith, the person at the heart of our faith, the Lord Jesus, to let his beauty shine in our lives. There are, for a church in every age and generation, at least two dangers in this regard. One, we can assume the gospel... In which case we will probably very quickly lose the gospel. We can use gospel speak without necessarily knowing what it is that we're talking about. So it's good for us to slow down uh, so that we together understand uh, the wonderful uh, reality that is the good news of what God has done for us in Jesus. But the other danger for us is that there can be a disconnection between the truth that we believe and the lives that we live. There can be a great difference between what we affirm, statements of faith, with the way that we share our lives together. And so I want us to take time for the next few months to think about the gospel and to see how that should shape our culture, our life, our family life together as a church. I didn't necessarily plan this, but during my sabbatical, and that was definitely where God led me, most of my thinking was about how should the people of God and our life together look different because we believe Jesus is Lord. So our aim every time that we meet is that as Christians, we would delight again and again in the gospel of the Lord Jesus. Uh, for those of us who are here who are not Christians, that you would be drawn to the Lord Jesus as you come to discover what God in Jesus has done. And that these gospel truths would more and more shape how we share life together. That there would be a gospel culture in our church. And for us to do that, let's go right to the heart of the gospel. Let's think together about substitution. Uh, and our approach today is going to see this great theme largely through the eyes of Peter, the disciple. So Peter wrote this letter, but it was also Peter who provided the content for Mark's gospel. So so we'll dip into Mark's gospel a little bit to get a sense of how Peter understands substitution. 
Our little section, I think, gave us an insight into why Peter is writing his letter. Uh, New followers of Jesus are now facing pressure from Rome. They're facing opposition. And so what Peter does time and again is he brings to them, here is what God has done for you in Jesus. Here is the good news that has saved you. So that, in the case of this little section we just read, that as those believers are united to Christ by faith, they would then follow his example and be ready to suffer for the sake of the Lord God. Um, so we're going to be in this section, 18 to 25, and I hope it will help us answer three questions, three simple questions. One, what is substitution? Two, who is the substitute? And three, why do we call substitution good news? So first, what is substitution? And I think at this stage it would be helpful to clarify because I imagine most of us if we hear the word substitute perhaps we will think in terms of sport one player goes off another player comes on or uh, we might think of the classroom Uh, a teacher is unavailable and so there is a substitute who is brought in or maybe you're just thinking of your online supermarket shop your product was not available so a substitute product is provided Now, that gets to part of the image, but not the whole image. It's not simply one person taking the place of another. In the Bible, substitution is the idea of one person taking the place of another, bearing their pain and saving the other from that pain. So perhaps in in modern day, it might be a better image for us to to think about a bodyguard uh, jumping in front of a politician or or a president to protect them from a bullet. Perhaps a parent they're giving their life to save a child from drowning. Those noble acts of loving self, giving sacrifice that we hear about. Well, the idea in Peter's mind, as he thinks about substitution, is drawn from the Old Testament. And that system of sacrifices given by God always intended to point to something greater. To point to the reality that in God's perfect timing, he would send his own son, Jesus, to be our substitute, to die as a sacrifice so that you and I, by trusting in him, might know salvation. So we can see this if you look at your Bibles in, for example, verse 24. Peter speaks of Jesus and he says, he himself bore our sins in his body. A sacrifice language. Uh, We can also see in the quotations From Isaiah 53, he committed no sin and no deceit was found in his mouth. By his wounds you have been healed. We can also see it in 1 Peter chapter 1 and verse 18. For you know it was not with perishable things such as silver or gold that you were redeemed, but with the precious blood of Christ. When Peter thinks about Jesus, the substitute, he thinks of that sacrificial work fulfilled by Jesus. So let's think about that together. So every time an Old Testament worshipper went to the temple with a guilt offering or a sin offering, a few things would happen. They would bring an animal with them. And that animal would then, they would then lay their hand on the head of the animal to say, my guilt and my sin is now being transferred. And then that animal would be killed. And the blood would then be sprinkled. And so the message in the temple was clear. That substitute dies for my sin. Their blood covers my guilt. 
so I can be in the presence of a holy God. Perhaps we can go, since we're going in the book of Exodus in the evenings, we can think about the Passover event when God's people Israel were slaves in Egypt. God announced that his judgment was going to pass right through the nation of Egypt. But in his mercy, he said to his people, there is a way for this judgment to pass over you. And what was that way? They had to take a spotless animal and they had to kill it and they had to sprinkle the blood on the doorpost that they lived in. And then the judgment would pass over. Why? Because a substitute has taken their place. And so every Old Testament worshipper understood this. But then, remarkably in Isaiah 53, God reveals there would be a still greater substitute. It was never God's intention that an animal could be a proper substitute for a person. So Isaiah 53, God reveals that a man would come, the servant of the Lord would come, the God-man would come, and he would be the substitute. And so we need to see that from beginning to end, the message of the Christian faith is not, Jesus is my example. Now sometimes where people go wrong, they think, well, Jesus gives, gives me a moral code and he gives me a set of rules and if I try really hard, that's what Christianity is about. No, it's not Jesus is my example. Christianity is Jesus is my substitute. And we will never understand the Christian faith and its good news until we understand that. Now let's think of it another way. Another way to think about substitution. Substitution in the Bible is presented as the answer to humanity's greatest problem. So naturally, and maybe especially as we watch, watch the news, we check our social media feeds, we we'll perhaps typically think our biggest problems lie outside of us. And there are many, aren't they? And they're real. The cost of living crisis, environmental disasters, global conflicts, violence on our streets, the ongoing impact of pandemic. So we typically think that the big problems are outside of us and the solutions, again, by nature, we think, well, the solutions are within. They're within us. We have the ability. We have the resources. We can fix these things. We can find the answers. And what the Bible does is the Bible humbles us because he shows us it's the other way around. Because the Bible says time and time again, the biggest problem lies inside of us. It's a problem of our sin before God. It's our rebellion against him. It's our law-breaking. That's the problem. It's the guilt that we have in the eyes of a holy God. It's the fact that by nature, because of our sin, we stand separate from God. We are enemies of God. And we are heading for a lost eternity in hell. That's the biggest problem we all face. And the solution, wonderfully, the solution doesn't lie inside of us. It lies outside of us in God giving his son Jesus to save and to forgive and to bring peace. So the Bible is clear and Peter is clear. The heart of the problem is the problem of our human hearts and the sin that lies within. And it's so important for us to recognize these two realities if we are to understand why substitution is good news. It's important we understand first that we are more guilty and sinful than we realize. 
And secondly, that God is more holy and righteous than we realize. Um, by way of uh, a picture and by way of confession, uh, from time to time I find myself guard, uh, digging in the garden, uh, sometimes weeding, sometimes planting, uh, but often, and maybe some of you can relate to this, I find myself quite lazy when it, times, it comes time to come back inside, forget to take the shoes off, can't be bothered clean my hands, and what's the result? You find those telltale muddy footprints all through the kitchen. You find the towel that's covered in dirt and grime. There are smudges everywhere. Mud sticks. Mud affects everything. And it's a picture of our own sin. And we need to understand that our thoughts, our words, our actions, our motives before a holy God are not pure and perfect. And then because God is holy and God is righteous, he cannot simply sweep our sin under the rug. He cannot turn a blind eye to it and he can't say, oh, never mind, you'll do better next time. Because if, if God doesn't care about sin, if God does not act righteously, then he ceases to be who he is. The Bible says he is a holy God, he is a just God, so he cannot be unjust. So then the question becomes, how can God be true to himself, how can he be both just and loving? How can he justly deal with sin and how can he love people like us who are sinners? And the answer is wonderful. The answer is by God himself providing a perfect substitute. By the Son of God coming to receive the judgment that we deserve so that sinners might receive pardon. That's the heart of the gospel. That's the heart of the good news. So that's what substitution is. Next, let's think about who is the substitute? So we sang, in my place condemned he stood. So let's think together, who is he? This one who stood condemned in the place of sinners. And again, this answer, though we may be familiar with it, should truly amaze us. It's also a a way to help us with the question, is it fair? So sometimes the question is that, is it fair that one person should pay for the sins of another? And hopefully as we think about who is the substitute, um, we'll go some way to answering that. So who is the substitute according to Peter? Well, look at verse 21. Now, we're given a title there to this you were called, because Christ suffered for you. Christ is the one, in verse 24, he himself bore our sins. So let's think, who is this Christ? That's a title that we find from the Old Testament. God's promised king. The one who would be anointed, given a special role, this role to be king and saviour. And it's this king, this perfect one, who is loaded up with sin, condemned at the cross. And so remember, uh, we said at the beginning that that Mark's gospel records uh, Peter's uh, testimony to the life of Jesus. And when you read um, in Mark's gospel, you discover so much of Peter telling us about the identity of Jesus. So verse 1, chapter 1, verse 1. It's the good news. His gospel is the good news about Jesus Christ, the Son of God. So who is this Christ? He is 
none other than the eternal Son of God, the one who became truly human to be the King and the Saviour the world was waiting for. And you go through the Gospel, Mark really divides his testimony into two. The first eight chapters are revealing uh, the glory of Christ. So we see his amazing miracles. Here's the one who heals the sick and stills the storm and even raises the dead. He is the one with incredible authority. Jesus says that he has the authority to forgive sins, that he's Lord of the Sabbath. The people are amazed that we never heard teaching like this before. And so the first eight chapters, you see crowds astonished by the glory of Jesus in his actions and in his words. But then chapters 9 to 16, there's a turn. And it's revealed that this same glorious king has come to be the suffering servant spoken of in Isaiah 53. This wonderful king sent by God to be our savior will die the death of a criminal. Back to 1 Peter and three truths about who is the substitute. Now, first of all, in verse 22 and 23, we discover that Jesus is a sinless substitute. So it begins there. He committed no sin. All of the actions of Jesus are righteous and holy and good. He goes on, no deceit was found in his mouth. Jesus spoke truth. Every word that came from his mouth was righteous. Verse 23, when they hurled their insults at him, he did not retaliate. When he suffered, he made no threats. His responses were always perfect and righteous, even under the most intense suffering. End of verse 23. Instead, he entrusted himself to him who judges justly. Jesus, in all of his motives, desires to do the will of his Father. His obedience is perfect and complete. Maybe you find yourself reading the Old Testament and ask yourself, why is there the big emphasis on these animals that are sacrificed having to be pure? The answer is because they're representing a perfect, pure and holy Saviour. So Jesus is holy and Jesus is sinless because he is the Son of God. We also discover that Jesus is the sin-bearing substitute. Verse 24 uh, can, can be described in terms of a, a great exchange. So what happens there? He himself bore our sins in his body on the tree, on the cross, so that we might die to sins and live for righteousness. There on the cross, Jesus becomes sin with our sin so that we might become righteous with his righteousness. Peter uses an interesting phrase in verse 24 in the newer version of the NIV. It doesn't necessarily pick it up, but it says he himself bore our sins in his body on the cross. Literally, he bore our sins in his body on the tree. And so again, maybe you have the question, why is he talking about the cross as being like a tree? It's because Peter knows his Old Testament and he knows in the Old Testament that everyone who hung on a tree was recognized to be under the curse of God. And so Peter deliberately uses this language to show to you and to me 
that Jesus, the perfect sinless Son of God, was willing to go under God's curse so that you and I might know God's blessing. What we discover happening at the cross is that Jesus experiences holy anger against sin from his Father so that his people, those who trust in him, never will. Third thing to notice about who our substitute is, he is a reconciling substitute. Look at verse 25. For you are like sheep going astray, but now you have returned to the shepherd and the overseer of your souls. The image in Isaiah 53, God's people straying into sin, and the Lord lays the iniquity on him. The image of the straying sheep that by nature left to ourselves, we are as people separated from God. We are in danger. We are facing death in our sin. But Jesus comes as the good shepherd. The good shepherd of Luke chapter 15, who searches for lost sheep in his love and grace, who joyfully brings them home to his father. He's the good shepherd who in John chapter 10 declares that he knows his sheep and he loves his sheep and he'll lay down his life for his sheep. So it's through the cross of Jesus and it's through the work of Jesus, the substitute, that you and I as spiritual strays, as spiritual runaways, can be brought home. Because Jesus, in his own body, takes the sin and guilt that we deserve. He pays the price we should pay. And he does that so that we might be called home if we will receive him as Lord and Savior. The Bible's remarkable message is it's none other than the God-man who bore the sins and took the place and faced the judgment for his people. Romans 5 verse 8, God demonstrates his love for us in this. While we were still sinners, Christ, this Christ, died for us. Maybe we find ourselves wrestling with this reality. Peter, who wrote our letter, he definitely wrestled with this reality. He couldn't see any way that the cross could be Jesus' destiny or Jesus' mission or good news. Jesus, if you're the king, why would you suffer in humiliation? But after the resurrection... Then Peter understands. And then substitution becomes the heart of the gospel uh, that he loves and proclaims. Let me ask you today, can you say and believe and rest your hope on this reality? He himself bore my sins in his body on the tree so that I might die to sins and live for righteousness. If that's your reality, praise God. And if not, ask for the faith to believe it. Here is the one who is totally God and totally man hanging in the place of sinners. And that reality actually gives the answer to the question, is the cross fair? Can someone pay for the sin of another? Perhaps we've had that question before. And when we think about it in, in terms of human justice, so if we were in a human law court uh, and a judge decided to punish an innocent person instead of a guilty one, what would we call that? 
We'd call it injustice, wouldn't we? But in God's law court, by God's design, what do we call it when the innocent dies in place of the guilty? We call it a miracle of grace. We call it the gospel. But maybe you ask, how can this be? And it's because of the identity of Jesus, because Jesus is fully God. He is the lawmaker who gives himself for lawbreakers. And so we understand in the gospel that substitution and grace are part of God's eternal law court. There is a principle of justice and mercy written in eternity that we see at the cross. As we close, why is substitution good news? It's not always good news. In a world of sports, nobody really enjoys being substituted unless they absolutely have to be. You can guarantee if you watch uh, football for a season, you will inevitably see at least one grown man having a tantrum having been substituted. In our natural pride, nobody wants to need a substitute. The cultural air that we breathe tells us to achieve and to perform. Yet substitution is God's way. And it's a precious way when we see it in the right way. So let's close briefly with three ways. It's good news for us all. In some ways restating where we've been. It's good news when we think about justice, when we think about the justice of God. Since God is holy and we are sinners, there is a price that must be paid. The Bible says the wages of sin is death. So there are two options for each one of us. Either Jesus pays for our sin at the cross or we pay for our sin for all eternity in hell. It's our choice. And when we understand that, then the gospel is good news because Jesus was willing to take our hell so that we don't have to. The gospel says Jesus bore sin, took death, satisfied the demands of holy justice so that when our faith is in Jesus, we can know forgiveness. And we can have assurance. We can look at the cross and say the verdict is already in. So it's good news when we think about justice. It's good news when we think about salvation. Do you know that saving grace is unique to Christianity? Every other religion, every other worldview operates based on natural pride and says either I don't need a saviour or I can save myself. But the reality is that we can never match God's standards. And that has never been God's way. Mark, remember Mark records Peter's view on the life of Jesus. Mark records a wonderful detail at the cross of Christ. So remember, Jesus dies outside of the city. But Mark records that as Jesus dies, something happens within the city, in the temple. The curtain is torn in two. That barrier separating the holy God from sinful people has been torn in two. The message is clear. The way back to God is open through Jesus and what he's just done in dying on the cross. Jesus on the cross declared, it is finished. God's plan of salvation has been completed. All that we bring is our need and our trust in him. And lastly, substitution is really good news when we think about the love of God. 
Because the message of the cross speaks powerfully of the love of God. Remember Romans 5, 8, God demonstrates his love in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. It speaks of a loving father who gives his son. It speaks of a loving son who willingly gives his life so that any of us, by trusting Christ as Savior, might receive eternal life. J.I. Packer, a theologian, said the measure of love is how much it gives. And the measure of the love of God is the gift of his only son to be made man and to die for sins and so to become the one mediator who can bring us to God. This week, I came across a story from just after the end of the American Civil War. There was a farmer in Tennessee who was observed kneeling at a grave. Um, And he was asked, is this the grave of your son? And the man explained, no, I was due to go to war, but I have a wife and I have seven young children. And so the day before I was supposed to go, my neighbor's son came and he took my place and he died there. And so the man was then asked, what is it that you're writing on the tombstone? And this Tennessee farmer wrote, he died for me. Love and worship in the Christian life springs from knowing this reality to be true in our lives. The Son of God loved me and gave himself for me. That's why substitution is the very heart of the gospel. Let's pray and give thanks. Lord, our God, we thank you that uh, woven throughout the whole Bible is this testimony uh, to your eternal, painful people by sending your perfect, sinless son to be the substitute that we need to take our place, to take our sin, to take the penalty sin deserves, so that by your grace and by faith in him, we might be forgiven. And we might be welcomed into your family. We might have peace with you. We might have hope in life and in death. May you give to all of us a growing appreciation of the message of substitution, that it would fill us with worship and fill us with a sense of grateful joy. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Now, let's